So grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, and you'll notice in on the screen um, that uh, we're going to skip a little bit. We're going to come back to it, Lord, week, Lord willing, next week, because I actually think this is the way Matthew wants us to read this. The uh, model prayer, oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer, is right here in the middle, and I think by sandwiching it between his teaching on prayer, it highlights what he's saying more there. So Lord willing, we'll come back to it next week. That's page 853 of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, take that home with you. If, if you don't want that Bible, we will get you a nice Bible. Uh, main thing is to read God's Word. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Holy Word. We want to read verses 5 to 8 and then skip down to verse 14. Matthew the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners and they, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then skip down to verse 14, if you will. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Go to Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask, as always, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Lord, this is your work. We ask that you would do it for your kingdom and your glory. Uh, Help us to see uh, the importance of prayer. Uh, this is vital to our intimacy with you and our development as the people of God. May you give us a robust prayer life that is powerful enough to change our lives, our homes, our churches, and our community. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have done this before because it is a, a bit of a, of a guilty pleasure. Actually, two of them. One I was actually got distracted with yesterday. One guilty pleasure I have is watching uh, local news bloopers. I'll save those for another time. But uh, another guilty pleasure I have is reading about um, ignoramus um, criminals. Is that the nicest way of putting it? You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, these are people who they come up with this master plan. And, and then when you read about what their crime was, you realize that, uh, well, they're, they're not the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? And then can I give you a few of them regarding disguises? You let me know if these are good disguises. In 2009 in Carroll, Iowa, not to be confused with Carrollton, Kentucky, although they, they produce the same people, two intoxicated burglars tried to break into, a, into an apartment. For their disguise, permanent marker. They took permanent marker, and they, I don't know if they did each other, you know, did each other's makeup or if they did their own. I don't know. Uh, but they covered themselves with permanent marker, tried to rob an apartment. They were eventually caught because they had yet to take off the permanent marker. Apparently, they didn't know what the word permanent meant. <laughs> Bless their hearts. In spring of 2015, a man robbed a convenience store wearing a clear plastic bag around his head and around his hands. Apparently, he didn't understand the clear part or that he breathed through the nose and the mouth. He was arrested shortly thereafter and sentenced to 15 years in prison. My absolute favorite, uh, I've mentioned it before, so I'm going to encourage you to YouTube this. 
this is in Ashland, Kentucky. You know where I'm going, Mark. The duct tape bandit. The duct tape bandit. Yes, he's the guy. He, he, his disguise was duct tape. Um, the best part of the video is the duct tape bandit, but what's better is the guy who was robbed laughing at the duct tape bandit. <laughs> so you need to YouTube that, and you, you, you need to uh, thank me by giving the youth money tonight in, in chili supper. You just need like, boy, I tell you what, I haven't laughed so hard. You know, I just, <laughs> camp will be paid off after that. Finally, in December 2016, a female bank robber, Statistically speaking, don't run into many of them. But a female bank robber disguised herself using a drawn-on fake mustache. And get this, she's never been caught as far as we know. Apparently it worked. Apparently it worked. She, she wore a hoodie and uh, uh, glasses. I don't know if she wore glasses regularly or not, but she had glasses on. And she had like a squiggly, like, like, an, like in the old cartoons, you know? She had like one of those, a squiggly little mustache. She got away with it. Got away with it. Of course, what is the purpose of these disguises? It is, it is to disguise what is actually going on on the inside. It's because you don't want to be caught. One I came across was a man who dressed as Gumby and robbed a convenience store. We, we do things like this all the time that, that the way we present ourselves on the outside is different from the inside. However, if you're robbing a place, I guess the inside did come on the outside. Do you remember what Jesus said here in verse 1 of chapter 6, where he said that when you, when you live out your righteousness, do it not to please others. That is what hypocrites do, play actors, people in disguises. Rather do, rather be motivated by uh, wanting to please the Lord. And last week we saw he applied that to the issue of charity, generosity, that when you give, see to it that God receives the glory and not yourself. Here he transitions to a second example of this, and that is the issue of prayer. He starts in verse 5 with a discussion on performance. You may have to, oh no, I have to see if I put it on. Performance there in verse 5. Um, you'll, you'll see there he uses that word hypocrite there. When you pray, you must not like be like the play actors, the impostors, impostors, those wearing disguises. Why? Because their motivation for prayer is to be seen. They want to be seen. Do not be like them. Rather, when you pray, do so in a way that God sees you and he hears you. And, and what he does to show that these hypocrites want to be seen is that they stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners. Now, we need to note here, Jesus is not condemning the posture of our prayers. A lot of times I get asked people about what is the proper way to pray. And the truth is, uh, all of the above is the proper way to pray. Let me give you just a few examples as it relates to our posture. The Bible gives us examples of godly men uh, kneeling in their prayers. Here are a, a few examples. Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 41, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is kneeling in his prayers. And Acts chapter Chapter 9, Peter, when he gets ready to heal Tabitha, he is kneeling in prayer. Paul in Acts chapter 20, when he is with the Ephesian elders on his last stay with them, uh, he kneels to pray. Clearly, kneeling is a common posture of prayer that we still do today. Uh, sitting is a common one. Uh, we get this in 2 Samuel 7. This is David who uh, sits 
down and praise. We also see people standing in the Bible who are praying. Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, where he is standing at the altar uh, at the dedication of the temple we saw uh, last year. He is standing and praying. Others will lift up their hands. Paul tells the holy men of the church to lift up their hands and pray. Look, the important thing here is, is to see that the posture of prayer is not a secret sauce. Often, and this is what we do, is, is, is if I am seen, if I want to be seen as a holy person, I'll present myself as a holy person. Everyone else may be sitting down, but I will stand up. Everyone else may be standing up, but I'll be sure to kneel down in my pew. I will raise my hands. I will, I will hold them to the side. I will grab on to someone. I will do this or that. And then the motivation is not to be drawn into communion with God, but to attach the attention of others. Jesus isn't saying that there's a good and bad posture generically, but rather the motivation behind is what matters. The same thing could be said regarding location. You'll notice he mentions here the street corners and the synagogues. We find throughout the Bible virtually every location you can imagine people are praying. This includes temples and altars and gardens and ships and homes and even the wilderness. Some pray publicly, some pray privately, but, but Jesus isn't saying that you can, the closer you are to the altar, the closer you are to, to the offertory table, the closer you are to, to X or Y or Z, then God can hear you. No, God hears you where you are. He hears you where you are. What matters isn't the location, but the motivation behind it. If we are motivated by a desire to gain approval, then our prayers are empty. Think about it, ladies. If your husband or significant other, your boyfriend, whatever, they bring you a gift and they come and say, I bought you a dozen flowers of your favorite flyer because it's our anniversary. Take it. Well, you don't want them now, do you? You don't want them. The whole day you were waiting for those flyers. You don't want them now. It's Valentine's Day. And, and, and he sends it to you. And the card says, there, leave me alone. I got you flowers. You don't want those flowers now, do you? Why? The problem isn't the gift. It's the motivation behind the gift. It's why you like spontaneous gifts, spontaneous dates, things like that. Because you want to know he's thinking of me. It's an act of kindness towards me. It's an act of affection and love towards me. That's what you want. And that's what Jesus is doing here. What matters isn't performance. That's the problem. But rather, the heart behind it all. So we move from performance to that of prayer here in verses 6 to 8 and then verses 14 to 18. In contrast to the play-acting hypocrite, the righteous seeks the approval of God. And here what Jesus actually does for us is he gives us a helpful guide into what godly prayers look like under the understanding that our motivation is in check. We want to communicate with God. That's all prayer is, is intimate communication with God. Notice, first of all, he tells us that prayer must be a priority. There it is, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. The key word there, as we said last week, is the word when. When. When implies priority. Think about it. There is a difference between when I go home and if I am drafted in the NBA. There is a difference. When makes it priority. When implies it's about to go down. When means it's going to happen. Jesus isn't saying if you ever get around to it. 
If your schedule opens up, if you're not too distracted and stressed out, if everything in your life is, is just where you want it, then when you pray. No, no, no he, he's saying when you pray, because the assumption is that the people of God pray to God. If you want a healthy and vibrant prayer life, prioritize it. Just as your marriage must be a priority for it to thrive, so must prayer be a priority if you want a thriving spiritual life. Let me tell you what happens whenever people get out of church, whenever people get, get out of growing in Christ. One of the first signs of that is a decrease or the absence of a prayer life. Martin Luther was right when, when he said that, uh, as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and cobblers to make to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. Pri- prayer must be priority. Go to your Father in secret. And that leads to intentionality here again in verse 6. Once again, Jesus is not prioritizing location. Find a quiet place. Go into the closet and pray. He's not prioritizing location, but the intentionality. If, if, if you have what Jesus describes here, then the attention is, I am going to pray here. Now, we would agree that there is a difference between a man who says, I will get engaged, and a man who buys an engagement ring. Would we agree with that? I remember uh, before me and the missus got, got married, I, I told her just to sort of drive her crazy, which is the job of every man. Uh, and I would say, honey, you need to know, by this date next year, we'll be engaged. Well, that's exciting news, isn't it? Until you realize that's 365 days. Could happen in any moment. And so every once in a while I'll say, hey, babe, do you think I bought the engagement ring? No, you haven't. You know, oh, you know we just, I just keep, keep teasing her. Not knowing that within a few short months I had it. It was in my dorm. And, and now it really hit me, right, that, that to say we're going to get engaged, that changed when you bought the ring and you're making those payments and you're, you're planning out how this is going to go down and, and is she going to say yes or no, you know, uh, th- those sort of things. There is a difference. So, too, many people say they want a robust life, but they take few practical steps to secure a robust prayer life. Maybe you should buy a journal. Maybe you should build you a prayer closet. Hey, get you a, a, a she shed if it means you're going to get a prayer life, for goodness sakes. And she sheds are awful. Set apart a sacred time of your day when you can be uninterrupted. Whatever it takes, do it. Maybe you should go buy you a book made up of uh, saint, uh, uh, prayers from saints who have gone before us. Uh, read the Puritans. Read the Reformers. Read prayers from the early church. Read, I don't know, maybe there's one for Baptists. I don't know. But find one. There's plenty of them out there. I'll go get you one. And, and say that as you learn to read through the prayers of others, you pray along with them. Pray through the book of Psalms. The main thing is to, to, to pray and to pray with intentionality because you will never pray unless you intend to pray and take the steps to do it. Thirdly, Jesus encourages to pray with simplicity here in verse 7. When you pray, there's that word again, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Now, it is my experience that those who want to improve their, their prayer life, the main problem they have is they overcomplicate it. They overcomplicate prayer life. At its simplest, prayer is communion with God. Uh, Every father has this conversation with his son. It's a conversation that has to be had. 
It's a conversation about how to talk to girls. Every father has to do this because ladies, you, you may not realize this, but you're scary. You're scary. Men will go to war with greater ease than they will talk to a pretty girl. That's a fact. That is a fact. They will risk life and limb and lesson of all talking to girls. It is a scary thing to do. We don't like rejection. We don't like any of that stuff to our own ego. And here's the advice every dad has to say is keep it simple. Keep it simple. I like you. Do you like me? Circle yes or no. That is as simple as it needs to be, right? Now, that, that works in fourth grade, I, I guess. No, no, but we will say that you should start by walking up to her, and then you should make eye, contacts, eye contact with her. You should speak clearly with confidence, and the word should, should include, my name is, something like that, or I have a job. Would you like to go on a date with me? Do you like coffee? Are you free Friday evening? Something like that. You ain't got to complicate it. Don't spend hours upon hours on, on pickup lines because, okay, d- d- do something more than that, right? Don't overcomplicate it. Don't overdo it. Prayers is, is similar to that. Speak clearly without overcomplication. That is to say, God can understand everything you say, even if it's not in King James English. He can. He can understand you. You don't have to say, uh, dearly father aboveth. You don't need to do any of that sort of stuff. Just pray. Speak. We must not yet again oversimplify what Jesus says here. He, he is also not criticizing long prayers because that's the implication that the Gentiles think that they will be heard for their many words. He's not criticizing the length of prayers as if they have to be five words or less. After all, if you read the Bible, you'll find tons of long prayers. I took several of them out. But, you know, Solomon has an entire chapter where he prays in dedication to, to, to the temple. You'll find them in, throughout the Bible. A lot of the Psalms are prayers. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, is probably a prayer. In fact, the, what scholars believe is the first autobiography in the modern sense is essentially one very long prayer. It's by Augustine. It's called Confessions. And it's, it's, it's an autobiographical narrative of his life, since it's autobiography, but he does it through the lens of a prayer. Dear God, you remember on that day, you know, all, all this sort of stuff. This is what it was like to go through. It's a prayer. It's an entire book length. God's not condemning any of that sort of stuff. His concern here is that of mo- motive. The pagans would pray on and on and on and on because they thought that the louder they were and the longer they spoke, God would finally hear them. And this attitude became a point of derision from the prophet Elijah. You may remember when he is on Mount Carmel, right? Um, and in 1 Kings 18, we find that they, that is the, the pagans, uh, uh, the, the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth, they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. You can't get a Baptist to sit in the pew for an hour, let alone from morning to noon. It's at least six hours, okay? If the day started at six, noon, that, that's, that's a long prayer. And, and they didn't even stop for coffee. And they're just going on and on and on and on. You remember what, what Elijah said? He goes, what's taking so long? Is, can your God not hear you? I bet he's on vacation, Right? He probably sends you an automatic email saying, sorry, Baal is out of town. We'll be back next week. Or maybe he's using the restroom, he said. He's using bathroom humor after them. He's just mocking him. And then he goes in and goes, watch this. Hey, God, do this. And boom, it did it. 
Jesus said, don't be like that as if you have to manipulate God to get your way. Just speak clearly. Be simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Nor is Jesus criticizing repetition in our prayers. In Matthew chapter 26, this is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew tells us that Jesus, you remember he, he would pray, then he would come out check on the disciples who were asleep. Jesus apparently the only one knew was a lock-in. And so he would go back and pray, and he would come back, check on the disciples, wake them up again. And then the text says that Jesus prayed the same words. You read the Psalms, you'll see a repetition of words. There's nothing wrong with that. You get the feeling that when in the parable, the, the man standing outside the temple from everyone else, he looks down and he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is saying that over and over and over again. Jesus isn't condemning this. What he's condemning is that the, the pagan idea that repetition was a secret uh, uh, weapon to get your way. And this had crept into Judaism. Ancient rabbis maintained that the longer the prayer and the more likely it would be heard and heeded by God. That's just not the fact at all. Prayer instead ought to be rooted in faith. God hears the cries of his children. You don't need to manipulate him. You don't need to control him. You don't need to impress him. Just pray believing he is listening. And that brings us to the fourth thing that Jesus says about prayer here, verse 8, and that is prayer must be done in faith. See what he says there, do not be like them, the Gentiles, and the hypocrites, for your Father knows what you need before you ask it. And immediately we are confronted with the most significant theological issue of this passage. You've already come to two conclusions in your mind. One, if God already knows what it is that we need before we ask it, why should we ask? Or you've concluded, it is because God already knows what we need, I should ask. And that will shape much of your theology. May I encourage you to land on the ladder. Pray because God already knows. Jesus, I believe, assumes the ladder here because he says God already knows, therefore pray. God's omniscience ought to motivate us to bring to him our needs because he isn't surprised by them. Isn't that good news? Isn't it like, hey, hey God, are, are, are you aware of some of this? And God's like, oh man, you just now bringing this to me? You know, you give me time to maybe Google to see what the good answer is. God already knows what our needs are. If prayer is only for petition, here I think Jesus shows us that we actually end up cheapening it. Think about it. Maybe at some point in your life you've had a relationship where the person in that relationship is always needy. They never call to check in on you. They, they, you never have a conversation that doesn't, that doesn't end in, in, I need this. In fact, maybe that's the sort of person, maybe someone comes to mind, if, if, their, if their number comes up on, on your telly, you, you think, oh, I'm going to send this to voicemail. But prayer's got to be more than simply petition. It is about communion and intimacy. It is communication with God. And we are open with Him. Um. Prayer invites us to enjoy God's good company. His fatherly sovereignty encourages us to be open and frequent in our prayers. But what about that question? Why should we pray if God already knows what it is that we need before we ask him? And the simple answer is that God ordains both the means and the ends. That is to say that God uses prayer to bring about the ends of prayer. God is still sovereign over those ends, but he uses prayer for his kingdom and glory. Just as God uses the rain to grow the crops, 
Just as he uses the sun to warm the earth or food to strengthen the body, so too God uses prayer for his own glory. Regardless, prayer is an act of faith. We beseech the Lord's goodwill, knowing that he can and he will accomplish all that he desires. Can I give you one more point about prayer? And that is, prayer requires practice. What I mean here isn't that we practice that prayer, but rather we practice what we pray. We put into practice our prayer. If prayer is primarily for communion and intimacy, then it ought to change us. After giving the model of prayer, which, which we'll see, Lord willing, next week, verses 9 to 13, Jesus actually repeats a, a part of the prayer. So you see there in verse 12 in the, in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who, who have forgiven us. And in verse 14, he returns to that theme. If we forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father forgive you. And so, so I think he's expanding on that point. So even though we could isolate verses 14 and 15, and rightly so, and just talk about forgiveness, and we could do that, it's really in the context of prayer that Jesus has in mind here. His point is, is that the closer we grow to the God of forgiveness, the more we will be uh, able and, 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 read, and ready to practice forgiveness. You know, scientists have done study on couples. You know one of the things they have found? Couples start to look like each other the longer they are together. Have you ever noticed this? You ever noticed this? It is a scientific fact. The longer you are together... You start to act like each other, and you start to look like each other. Now, that's probably a good thing for the guys. Some of y'all need some improvement. Sorry, ladies. It's just all downhill the minute you get married. But there's a scientific fact to that. And part of this should should just be sort of obvious. The more time you spend with someone, the more time you you grow together with someone, in many ways that one flesh relationship takes on its, its practical side of it. You start to finish each other's sentences. You start to know what the other person's thinking before, before they say it. You can read their eyes. You can read their intentions. You could, when they come in, you know, I have a good day at work, a bad day at work. The kids drive them crazy, whatever it is. You, you, you start to look like each other and act like each other, think like each other, talk like each other. And, it, and, and this makes sense. The same should be true when it comes to our relationship with God. The longer we are growing in intimacy with him, the more like him we should become. And one of the easiest ways to see if we are becoming like Jesus is how we grow in the area of forgiveness. And you will never grow in the area of forgiveness, as we saw in chapter 5 of of, of Matthew. You will never grow in the area of forgiveness without prayer. You will never do it. Unless you are praying, unless you are invested in the word of God, unless you are around the people of God, being discipled to be like Christ, you will never be a person of grace. You will be a person of bitterness, anger, envy, malice. We must put into practice the things we pray. In 16th century, Martin Luther is known to be a theologian, and rightly so. He changed the world simply because he lived but he's really a pastor. So what makes Luther so brilliant is he's not just a theologian in an ivory tower. He's, he's a preacher behind a pulpit, and he's, he's got people to love and to minister to, and this is what drives his theology. And one day, Luther was getting a haircut, and uh, he was very close to this, uh, uh, this barber in Wittenberg, Germany. And the barber was just sort of talking to him, cutting his hair, and, and he says, Dr. Luther, um, 
can you teach me a simple way to pray? And he thought about it, and he went home. And that day, he wrote a book. It is my favorite book on prayer. We've looked at it on Wednesday nights. We may actually do that soon. Again, I absolutely love it. It is called, it's a very skinny book. Even you public school kids can do it uh, from Moline County. It is a skinny book called A Simple Way to Pray. His main model is actually to take Scripture and pray through Scripture. That's his main model. Can I read to you sort of the beginning of it? He dedicated it to his barber. You can still read it. Get on Amazon right now. Buy it. That's, that's where, where we got ours for the church. Let me read to you what, what it is that he, he wrote up here. I'll put it up on the screen. So a good and attentive barber keeps his thoughts, attention, and yes, on the razor and hair and does not forget how far he has gotten with his shaving or cutting. If he wants to engage in too much conversation or let his mind wander or look somewhere else, he is likely to cut his customer's mouth, nose, or even his throat. Thus, if anything is to be done well, it requires the full attention of all one's senses and members. How much more does prayer call for concentration and singleness of heart if it is to be a good prayer? Here's the secret to a good prayer. It is to pray. You have the gifts and the callings and the abilities in you right now to grow in intimacy with God. You don't need to fear it. You don't need to complicate it. You just need to do it. Maybe you can do it standing up. Maybe you can do it sitting down. Maybe you can do it lying down or kneeling. Maybe before you go to bed. Maybe when you rise up. Maybe in the middle of the day. Maybe when you have a break at work. Maybe it's in the long drive to and from from work or to practice or whatever. Maybe it's, maybe it's primarily on the weekends or on the weekdays. Whatever, whenever, however, pray. Pray. And then pray some more. Don't be like the hypocrites, but be like the child of God who longs to speak to his Father. I don't know what your story is here this morning, what drives you to be here, but let me encourage you to, to grow in your prayer life. And that will begin when you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. If you've never embraced Christ, let your faith journey begin with prayer. Let it begin by crying out to your Savior, God, be merciful to me sinner. And God hears such a prayer. If you've never accepted Christ, I'm going to ask that you come in this time of invitation and pray. Let us pray together. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to help us in this vital area of prayer. It is appropriate that in these three sections of generosity, prayer, and fasting that Jesus spends his most time with prayer. Just as every relationship needs open and frequent communication, so too do we need that in our communication with God. Well, we all know that we need prayer, and we all know that we need to pray. But so often we neglect both. Isn't this what the local church ought to do? As we lift each other up, we are praying for and we are praying to. We are praying for one another praying for the needs around us, but we are praying to a God in whom we love, to grow in intimacy with Him. Not simply because we have needs, but because we love our Maker and Redeemer. Lord, I ask that it is through prayer, honest, heartfelt, genuine prayers, that you transform this church. 
We confess to you our weaknesses. We confess to you our brokenness. We confess to you our sins. Transform us into the image of the Son and then use us by your Spirit and through the power of your presence to transform this community with the gospel. Lord, I ask if there's anyone who's never embraced Christ, I ask in prayer that today be the day they do so. Bring them to Jesus. In the name of your glorious Son, we pray. Amen. Thank you.